Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we continue in the Psalms of Summer Sermon Series with guests David and Debbie O'Brien from the ministry Celebrate Recovery as they speak on biblical principles for recovery and freedom. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. We are aware that there are some audio issues in this episode, and we appreciate your understanding. Amen. Welcome to Impact Church this morning as we celebrate the great independence and freedom in our nation. On July 4th of 1776, you may well know that was when our 13 colonies adapted this Declaration of Independence and signified our separation from a tyrannical ruling country of Britain who was wreaking havoc and rule, imposing demands and excessive taxes. And one of the biggest things was this, telling the colonies who they could worship. So when this day was set, it was set of independence of freedom from that kind of rule so that we could be free to worship the Lord in this country. We still want to celebrate that today. And we th- are thankful for the men and women who have sacrificed their lives so that we could still be free through many wars overseas and today as we fight even an internal battle of people that want to take away that freedom to worship and to stand on the Word of God. So we want to represent and remember our independence and our freedom, and more so than just the freedom of our country, the freedom that we have in Christ. Because Christ came to set us free, the Bible says. And John says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Paul said in Corinthians. And we know that our freedom, therefore, is in Christ, but our freedom is never to stay in the bondage or the yoke of the slavery of sin. I want to read for you Galatians 5, verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Verse 13 in the same chapter says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's freedom. Only do not use liberty, your freedom, as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our call is to be free in Christ, but more than just be free to do what we want, free to live for Jesus, free to stand on his word and live our life the way the Spirit leads us. That's what we have freedom in Christ to do. So we're going to have a great message today as we talk about being set free from the yoke, the bondage, the slavery of sin or circumstances that hold us down. Welcome to Impact Church this morning. Um, getting close to the message here. I promise to be quiet, but I wanted to announce this. Last week, we took up a special offering for our Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center, which after the uh, decision of the Supreme Court to uh, reverse Roe versus Wade, they were vandalized and attacked and um, kind of everything messed up and spray painted, windows busted out, the whole nine yards. So uh, we took up a special offering last week, and we, I want to let you know how the Lord moved in this special giving heart of this church. And we were able to raise $4,000 last week, last Sunday, to give to them. And it could possibly be more because some more come in through the uh, missions giving online, so there may be some addition to that, but we at least have $4,000 going to the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center this week. If you want to give further to that, feel free. There's envelopes. You can mark it, um, Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center on it, and give, and we can give more to them uh, and, and add to that, but just a special um, gift that we'll be able to give to them to help because we know that now um, the, the pressure's on to, to meet women where they're at and to help them through difficult situations and times as they make the right decision to give birth to their baby and, uh, and we'll see how the Lord leads. So thank you for your giving heart. Now to introduce our, our speakers again today. If you were here last week, you heard uh, Pastor David O'Brien and his wife Debbie talk about uh, Celebrate Recovery, give their testimony and talk uh, much about this program that we're going to start out of Impact Church as we get ready to launch it, uh, hopefully sometime in late August um, and or soon thereafter anyway. So 
Today, they're going to come and explain more of Celebrate Recovery and very specifically the eight steps of recovery that CR has. And what you're going to see is these eight steps of recovery we all can use. It's not just for people who are hung up on the things that we think that you need recovery from, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, whatever, sexual addiction. Yes, we need all that. But there's also other things in life that we get caught up in, fear, anxiety, depression, what well, you name it, that we can use these eight steps to go through to recover from anything that is holding us back, to keeping us down. And so I want you to get a message out of this. These eight steps of recovery come from the Beatitudes out of Matthew chapter 5. David's going to lace in some psalms with it. So I want you to really uh, prepare your heart, prepare your uh, mind for, to receive this word, because I know God's going to do a big thing. So David and Debbie, if y'all want to come on up and give them a big Round of applause and welcome as they bring a message from God's Word to us today. All right, so <laughs> we are so excited to be here, and it's an honor to be here, and we thank Brad so much and you guys for inviting us back to do this uh, and share what we're talking about today. Uh, but I thought I'd break the ice uh, by wishing my wife a happy birthday. It's her birthday today. Okay, I had to do that. I feel a lot better now. <laughs> told him not to do that. Okay. All right. So my name is David O'Brien. Oh, and I'm Debbie O'Brien. Yes. Uh, and uh, we've been doing Celebrate Recovery for quite some time. Thank you for letting us share our story last week. Brad really nailed it, man. He covered it, that Celebrate Recovery isn't just for addiction, right? That only one out of three people that come to CR... Uh, come for a chemical addiction. 60% of the people that come, come for something else. They come for sexual integrity, codependency, hurt, struggling in a marriage, eating disorders. I just want to live my life better than I'm living it and feel differently than I'm feeling. So people come for a lot of different reasons. A lot of times people come into recovery uh, for one thing and they stay for four. Right? Because we start to discover some things that, uh, this isn't about creating things or inventing problems, but we, we discover, hey, there's some things we've been sitting on that we really haven't been looking at. And so I think that the purpose uh, for the steps and the principles is really to heal us uh, and to draw us into a right relationship with God and our fellow man so I can feel, we can feel the presence of God and serve others. I think ultimately that's why we're, we're doing this. So principle one, this is the reality choice, admitting my need. And one of the things I was thinking about, you know, in order to get saved, when we come to the Savior, Jesus Christ, you have to be lost. There has to be a need. There has to be an issue. I can't get saved if I'm not lost. And it's the same thing uh, with our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. The same God that can save us is the same God that can change us. So I want to start off with Psalms 37, 4 through 7. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And so I wanted to show the first principle, which is this, and it should be up on the screen now. There it is. Realize I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor, Matthew 5, 3. So we'll focus on this first part, realize I'm not God. I believe that most of us don't have the Messiah complex. We probably don't need to be institutionalized because we really think we're God or the Messiah, right? Yeah. But in so many different ways, by my priorities, by idolatry in my life and other things like that, I can play God in my life. The truth is, sometimes I walk by sight and not by faith. I can play God by putting God in the passenger seat and trying to run the whole show myself. <clears throat> you know, worrying first and trusting God later. So growing in Christ in my recovery has certainly taught me uh, the greatness of God's sovereignty and that he's in control. As God's word says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so I wanted to highlight uh, a quote from Life's Healing Choices uh, that kind of gives in a nutshell. How do we play God? What are the different ways that we play God? Well, we play God by denying our humanity 
and by trying to control everything for our own selfish reasons. So what do I mean by that? Well, in my own performance-based driven life or my perfectionism, uh, I don't want you to see that I'm not okay. So in one sense, I deny my humanity. I deny my brokenness. But by denying my humanity, I'm denying that I need a savior, that I need God's grace, not just for my salvation, but for my day-to-day -day needs. And so we attempt to be the center of our own universe. And here's some other ways we play God. We can play God by trying to control our image, other people, our problems, and our pain. Let me say that again. We, we can play God by trying to control our image, other people, our problems, and our pain. And so the second part of the principle says this, that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Now, I don't always do the wrong thing, but I have a tendency to do the wrong thing. And part of the first step in recovery, along with this principle, is stepping out of denial and not minimizing the hurt, habit, or hang-up in my life. Sometimes pain is the great motivator. In fact, for me and most people, we don't even take step one. We don't admit our need or our powerlessness without some pain involved, right? Like C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, right? I don't change when I feel cool and comfortable. I change when I feel the heat. And so God will bring these three things into our lives that I wanted to cover today briefly, and we call them denial busters, denial busters, Right? When I'm in denial, I'm compartmentalizing sin in my life. I've, I've got an area of my life I'm not looking at, and uh, I'm minimizing. And honestly, when we're caught up in bad attitudes of the heart, the heart gets deceived. When we're caught up in sin, we're in a trance. It's like we're, we're not hearing what people are saying. You, you ever talked with somebody or realized yourself that you're ignoring the warnings of what people are saying? You're just like in a trance. You're not really hearing that. You've compartmentalized it. The heart's become hard. And so God brings some pain in our life to get our attention. And so one of those denial busters is a crisis. That's the first one. So God will bring a crisis in our life. Sometimes it's because of our own choices. Maybe for some it was a, a DUI. Or maybe it's workaholism within a marriage. Or communication issues. Or a financial burden that shakes us up enough to take a look at what's going on in our life. The second denial buster is confrontation. God loves us enough to put people in our lives to say, hey, you're messing up. I think you might want to take a second look at that. And so if the first denial buster, right, the crisis, do we have that slide up there somewhere? Somewhere. Oh, probably not. Anyway, <laughs> oops. The, uh, I'll say it enough, you'll remember, right? So if the crisis doesn't get our attention, and if the confrontation doesn't get our attention, then that brings the third denial buster, which is catastrophe. And that's when the bottom falls out. Something I learned years ago, uh, some theological terms uh, that you are in the Bible, uh, and sometimes in newer translations you don't see it, but the word scourging. And I realized when I had hit the brick wall, when I had gotten incarcerated, I had talked about that last week, putting my family in the poorhouse, that from theological perspective, this was a scourging in my life. And uh, the Bible also talks about chastisement, which means discipline, right? God's discipline. So there's a scourging, that's punishment. And there's a, a chastisement, which is discipline. And so God wants to redirect me, wants me to repent, wants me to get back on track and fellowship and communion with him. And so he brings discipline into my life, right? Even Hebrews talks about that, uh, that a father that loves his child will bring discipline. And so God loves his children and he disciplines those he loves, which also implies that we've done something wrong, that there's actually been a sin or a bad choice. And so he disciplines us. In fact, he says, if you don't undergo discipline, you're illegitimate and not a true child of God. So we undergo discipline. And discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So here's my point, right? The crisis comes along as discipline. The confrontation comes along as discipline. And so God is trying to get my attention. And if I'm trained by it and I respond and I repent and I move back and get on track with God that I'm in a right relationship with him. But what I did in my life is I ignored God's discipline and he brought a scourging. And that's when God takes you to the woodshed. And it's really painful and you hope it only happens one time in your life if you survive it. And so that's what the catastrophe is. But the truth of the matter is, most of us have to have some kind of crisis in order to really take step one. I would have to ask myself this question how did I play God in my life? 
my powerlessness um, would come when I would try to control, convince, or convict people in my life. I call them my three C's, control, convince, and convict. All three issues presented differently, but today I'm gonna to focus on the control part. I would manipulate information, especially with David, to control the narrative, how he would view me, not wanting to rock the boat. It was all based on my fear of disappointing him and fear of his anger. God showed me that, God showed that to me and that that was one area of my life where I was being spiritually poor as I was not trusting God for the outcome of my honesty. Principle one helped me to start working through the process of addressing where my spiritual defects were, specifically my control issue and how to deal with them. God helped me to identify what character defects he needed to work on in me and how to work on them. Psalms 86:11 says, teach me your ways, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me, un give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Thanks. Principle two, this is the getting help. This is the hope choice. Psalm 62, one verse two says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Principle two says, earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. The question is, oh, go ahead. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. Yeah, the question is, do I actually believe that? So that I matter to him, that he has the power to help me recover. And I believe that most of us as Christians would say, yeah, of course, we, we believe that. But how many of us, um, because of our own bad choices or the hurtful choices of others or the entrapment of our addictions, have really felt just the opposite? Because of the cycle of sin in our lives or the cycle of hurts, I'm not sure I matter to God. I, I'm not sure he has the power to help me recover. It's a good thing our salvation is not based on a feeling. Because of our sins and character defects, we can get caught up in a cycle of failure and being overwhelmed with shame and guilt. This chisels away at our confidence in Christ. And I want to highlight shame and guilt a little bit. What is that? You know, it took me a while in recovery to even understand what influence that really had on my life. Uh, so I just want to touch base on that a little bit. So, you know, uh, you have a value system. I have a value system. Whether it's a, a, a godly one or, or one that's influenced by the world or a combination. I have a value system. You have a value system. And so guilt is when I break your value system. But shame is when I cross mine. And because of my repetitive behaviors and poor choices, I continued to cross my value system. And I continued to experience shame. So guilt is when I make a mistake. But shame is when I think of a mistake. And if I live in such a way to live that pattern out over and over again, it erodes at my confidence in Christ. And so when I conceded to my innermost self that, that I'm powerless to change on my own in principle one, then hope was actually possible in principle two. And this starts with faith. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and what? That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We matter enough to God to have his son die on the cross for our sins. Psalms 53, 1 through 3 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their way is vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I don't ever want that to be me. When he looks down on me, I want him to see me seeking him out. I know that God exists. I never doubted that. I know that I matter to him because I recognize personal prayers that he has answered for me. And I've witnessed his miracles and seen the influence he has had in my life and how he provides for my family now and in the past. Nature alone shows me that he exists. The impossible to me, he makes possible. The fact that I'm sitting here on this stage next to David and that we have served in ministry together for 20 years and have been married for 34, God made that possible. When my faith is small, I ask him to increase it, and he does. When I ask him for rest, he gives it to me. But I must do my part, too. I need to ask. I need to believe and to trust him. My challenge is when I know that I've disappointed him because of my sinful behavior. My shame stops me from turning to him to help me recover from myself and from the challenges in life. 
I must learn to be intentional about turning everything over to him. All right. Thank you once again. So principle three is the letting go. It's the commitment choice. Uh, do we have Psalms 14.1? Can we put that up there? Is that? Oh, okay. That's okay. We'll just read it. All right. So uh, Psalms 14.1 says this. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. When, when we're looking at principle three, this is a turning point. This is pivotal. Uh, just like getting saved, we cross from death to life. Uh, and so we'll look at a couple of applications that this step really has. Recovery is really about transformation. It's not just reformation. This isn't just about sin management. There has to be a real change with inside that drives us in a, a different direction uh, as we seek God. But listen to what uh, Psalms 119, uh, 1 through 6 and 911 says. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, whose walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so principle three says, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Matthew 5, 5, happy are the meek. So when we're coming into this principle, we're coming into it from two different places, right? For some of us, when we come into recovery, we've already had a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're already saved, right? So for some of us, though, we're coming into this step, this principle for salvation. For others, it's sanctification. Ultimately, it's both. God saved us uh, to sanctify us. But for some of us, uh, when we come into Celebrate Recovery, we kind of blow past this portion here, turn my life and will over to the care of God. Well, I'm already saved. I've already been there, done that. But the idea is I haven't been really turning my will over or I wouldn't be here with some struggles in my life that I need to surrender. And so there's the sanctification portion where I'm in fellowship and communion with God once again. And so there's, there's two main purposes for this principle. Uh, and that's to get right and get on track with God. Uh, and without this, there's almost no point in going on with the rest of the principles. In Romans chapter 5, 1, it says that we have peace with God, right? That's when we get saved. That's when we cross from death to life. We now have peace with God. In other words, we've been justified in Him because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we make this choice when God calls us to Him, and we basically believe and say what it says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It, that's got to transpire. First things first. But this is really important too. Salvation brings a purpose. God didn't just save us to leave us here. The rest of the steps and principles are in place so that I can walk a more sanctified life and really find out and learn what God's purpose is for my life. We see this laid out in Ephesians chapter 2.10, that he does have a purpose. Just before that, in, in uh, verse 9, he says, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Most of us are familiar with that. But it goes on to say in, in 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has created us for a purpose, and it took time for his purpose to unfold in my life, and it's still unfolding as I surrender to him. So the idea here is, you know, salvation is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and we have to come into this principle and make sure that that's happened, yet I have to turn my will over to God on a daily basis and die to self. I never really understood what it meant to be meek, but what it really means is strength under control. I knew that God existed. I knew that I was a sinner in need of a savior. I understood the gospel plan, and that's why I asked Jesus into my heart when I was so young. But it wasn't until I was unable to manage the unmanageable in my life that I started to work on that daily relationship with Jesus and give my will over to him, which really came clear when I met David. Then I came to understand that I needed to commit all to him. For only three letters, all is a totally encompassing word. What was unmanageable in my life? 
my control issues, not trusting God fully, thinking that he might need my assistance to fixing things in life when what he really needed was my submission. I mentioned in my testimony that I was a very self-reliant individual, and I still battle with that to this day at some point, but Jesus really helped me to be more reliant upon him. Um, but let me touch a little bit on codependency. You hear that word a lot, but most people don't know what it truly means. David actually created a lesson on this because it is such an intricate topic. But I will touch on a couple of things. Codependency is a loss of self and others. Fixing is their fix, and they can struggle with setting boundaries and are, and are reactionary. They overreact, they underreact, but rarely do they act. That was me. There is also a cycle where they rescue, lecture, and then feel victimized and hurt when the one they poured into doesn't change. If you are a codependent, and most people have some codependency within their lives, it can seep into every fiber of who you are, and it's very dangerous for relationships. I had compulsive behaviors that got me into trouble because I was unwilling to wait on God. As a child of God, there are natural blessings that come with committing all of my life to God's care and control. And the most important one is my righteousness comes from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for me. Psalms 34, 17 through 20 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Each person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from all of them and he protects all his bones and not one of them will be broken. So when I consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control, I am leaving it in his hands and submitting to what he wants from me. It is a daily process and sometimes a daily struggle, but it's so worth it. Yeah, thank you again. So principle four, coming clean, this is the house cleaning choice. So if you've had family over and it's gotten real busy or you get busy at work or things happen, you ever notice, you know, when you have to start in the spring and yard work's piled up and the dishes are piled up. You ever get a house so dirty that you just don't even know where to start? Does that ever happen? Probably never. How about the yard, right? So the idea of a house cleaning is already overwhelming. But I want you to think about this. A business that doesn't take a regular inventory usually goes broke, right? So whether you're working for a software company or out uh, doing lawn care, working in a warehouse, working construction, the medical field, wherever it is you're working, we all produce product and services that we offer people. And if they're not working or not selling, what do we do? We get rid of them. Right? If something isn't working, it's out of here. It's not making us money. Uh, we, we want a paycheck. We want to pay for our bills. So we want to be successful in our business. So we, we inventory it. And a business that doesn't do it ends up going broke. But here's the, the, the odd thing. When it comes to my personal life and our personal lives, we hardly ever do an inventory. And we'll spend years carrying around uh, a bag of stuff, our baggage, our hurts, our unforgiveness, our addictions. Uh, we've just never really inventoried the stock and trade, what's working and what's not working in my life, and then get rid of that stuff and lighten the burden. And that's what this is, is really about. Because it's easier to inventory outside my life than it is to inventory inside. Part of this step is also the fifth step. So you've got uh, this inventory, this list, and you're working through resentments and hurts and things and fears and character defects. And then you're sharing that with somebody. Uh, and, and this is kind of where uh, the rubber hits the road in recovery. This is where we find out whether or not we're really serious about moving forward in this. But David himself, King David, saw the benefit of this. You see this in Psalm 32 when he says this to the Lord. He says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through me all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and, you did not, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my sin. Psalm 32, 1 through 5. And so we confess to God for forgiveness, but we confess to each other for healing. Not everyone in the neighborhood, not everyone in the congregation, but look what it says in the principle. Openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. Matthew 5, 8, happy are the pure in heart. James 5, 16 says, 
Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And we have that one trusted person in recovery, gets why we're doing it, understands this. We're as sick as our secrets. Most of us have masks in our lives and we've traveled a long time uh, not letting people in uh, to our lives so that we can find out in that inventory what we need to get rid of, what we need to keep, uh, so we can find the healing that we're looking for. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. You know, in 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And what we're going to see here is there's a reason God wants us to do this. There's a reason God wants us sanctified and set apart. And he wants us to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. How do I do that? Well, this inventory helps me with that. In fact, we can see one of the purposes here in Hebrews 9.14. It indicates that the effects of Christ's shed blood through the power of the eternal spirit was to clear our consciousness from acts that lead to death. Why? So that we can serve the living God. I need to work through these principles so I can a healthy way serve the living God the way he intended me to do it. You know, a lot of the thoughts and feelings I had, I kept to myself. And it was really hard breaking that habit. I, I don't know about you, but I, I spent a journey, especially in my younger years, having conversations, thoughts, and reasoning through things and never shared them with anybody. Right? If you thought about me as much as I thought about me, you'd be sick too. Okay. So I kept a lot of thoughts and feelings to myself. Self-centered fear and pride prevented me from letting people into my life. You know, when I first did this principle, it was huge in getting me out of isolation and joining the human race. I had what was known as terminal uniqueness. I was so unique, it was killing me. One of the other things uh, that this step does, which I had highlighted a little bit a second ago, is it gets rid of, helps to get rid of the burden, give it to Christ where longs of the guilt and shame. Guilt does three things, and they're not good. It destroys our confidence, it damages our relationships, and guilt keeps us stuck in the past. Openly means allowing access, unrestricted passage to the depths of who I am so that God will reveal to me the character defects that are hidden even from myself. I need to daily invite him in with no restriction so that I know what to confess. Sure, there are things that are very evident even to me that I need to confess, but I want him to reveal what I can't recognize easily. But something else that he does for me when I openly examine myself through his lens, he showed me how amazing I really am. He shows me that I am blessed beyond measure, that I am clothed in strength and dignity. He shows me that his love for me is endless. I belong to Jesus and his spirit lives in me and that is who I draw my strength from. It's not always about just finding out what's wrong with me. It's also recognizing what's right with me. Psalms 139, 1 through 6 says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you have your laid your hand on me. Just knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Thank you. Principle five is making changes. This is the transformation choice. This is where caterpillars become butterflies. <laughs> you know, we use that as an example for transformation, and I'm going to highlight that word here in just a second. But, it, you know, I, it, translated, that means metamorphosis. And, you know, what happens with a caterpillar in the cocoon, and then it turns into a butterfly? You know, scientists understand some of the elements of those things, but they don't understand the miracle of how that really happens. And really, that's what we're talking about here uh, when God comes into our lives, being born again, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's literally like this idea of going from a caterpillar to a butterfly, something completely different. I love Psalms 40, <clears throat> 1 through 3. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry, and he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet up on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. I love this. He put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. 
And so the principle five says, voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Happy are those whose greatest desires to do what God requires, Matthew 5, 6. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, a familiar verse, <clears throat> starts off with this. It says, in view of God's mercy. Now think about this. I just want to back up a little bit. So in view of God's mercy, Paul had just spent the first 11 chapters of Romans describing the forensics of the theology of being saved by grace through faith, that we're not under the law, but that we're under grace. But the world is under sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? And so he explains the mercy of God all through this, plus a bunch of other things about the Christian faith. When you go over to chapter 5, he talks about the gift. He says it five different times, how we received this gift, that while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? When you go to chapter 8, he says right off the bat, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then as you keep reading, he talks about how uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So I said all that to say this. He comes into chapter 12 and he starts off basically what he's saying. In view of all this, everything I've just said, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God because this is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to understand and approve of what God's good and perfect will is for your life. And so the idea of this voluntarily submitting, there's so many different ways that I can be a living sacrifice to God. And the idea of this verse here for me in this principle is that when we give God our hurts, when we give him our unforgiveness, when we give him uh, our addictions, I'm saying, I want to live for you, God. That is a living sacrifice as we approach God with that. You know, God removed my desire to drink. I saw that as a miraculous event. But what about other character defects like pride, selfishness, anger, lust, indecisiveness, procrastination, fear, anxiety, and the list goes on. The first part of principle five says voluntarily submit to every change. So the inventory in principle four that we just talked about helped me to identify my character defects and sins in my life. I can't give something to God I haven't identified. I need to get below the waterline. Many times we just see the tip of the iceberg. And look, God could, by the power of his spirit, remove these things all at once. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he works it just that way. But I think God gave us an example through Paul why he doesn't always do that. And I'll give you another reason why I think he doesn't do it instantly like that. Because we're a part of what's going on. But you know, Paul talked about how when he was weak that he was strong. And he starts off that second section in 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, to keep me from being conceited, there was a messenger given to me by Satan, right? To keep me from being conceited by these many great revelations that God had given me. And this is Paul, wrote to Damascus Experience, wrote half the New Testament, and God thought it was probably a good idea to help him stay humble, right? And I think he does the same thing in my life. And so he put a thorn in his flesh through a messenger from Satan. He asked God three times to have it removed. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And one of the things he said is he started to welcome these weaknesses. Why? Because Christ rested upon him. And so he benefited from that. And I think uh, there are some big things in our lives God wants us to remove so that we can serve him effectively. He's removed some big things. But I think some things remain so that I'll stay on my knees and rely on him. There's a tension in my life uh, that doesn't go away. Because if it wasn't there, I don't know that I would choose to follow him the way I would. I need a little fire under my tail now and then. And God does that through some of these things. But here's the reason I think he doesn't remove it right away. Because I think God wants us to be a part of the process. God wants us to willingly give him those things. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll remove them and heal us. And we don't do this alone. This is big. We don't do this alone. We do this together. The identification process is powerful. I need to maintain an honest view of reality. That's why in the process, we spend time in God's word, right? It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We spend time in our open share groups, <clears throat> in our step studies, in our fellowship time, so that we can continue to take our spiritual temperature. Hurts become hang-ups, and hang-ups become habits, which are fueled with character defects, and they are bad company for me to keep. 
I mentioned in my testimony that I used to live in the South Pacific when I was young, and between each village, there was a path lined with big stones. We didn't wear closed-toed shoes when living there, and I don't ever remember putting them on until we were headed to the airport to fly back to the US. We wore Zoris, like this. This is a Zori. You call them flip-flops here. When we would walk between the villages on those stones, when it was rainy and I had on my Zoris, the stones were wet, and wet feet don't stay on the Zoris and slide everywhere. I would fall and get hurt, um, but if I would take off my Zori and just walk in my bare feet, I didn't slip on the stones anymore when they were wet. I was secure on top of that stone in the rain and didn't slip anymore. To me, that's what hanging on to a character defect is like in my life. I am slipping and sliding through life and keep losing my traction as long as I hang on to it. So let's say that my need to control is the character defect that I struggle with the most. Now, as a follower of Jesus, for me, the challenge is that being a living sacrifice is that I keep getting up off that altar. So many times I can allow depression, anxiety, fear of a situation, lack of trust in others or myself or challenges in my relationships to cause me to jump off, that op that, to jump off the altar and sabotage my progress. If I would just rest on the altar and submit to God's plan and not mine, then I would be able to continue in my growth and healing. It is, better to, it is better for all concerned if I stay out of God's way and let him be in charge. This does not mean that I do nothing. What it does mean is that I don't do what God needs to be doing because I am not God. God is gentle, but he is also very vocal and very stern with me um, when I am in his word and lets me know what he requires of me as his daughter and what he wants from my life. <clears throat> this takes me to bright back to principle two. I matter to him. That I know, so humbly submitting to the changes he wants to make only makes things go well for me and those around me, actually. Fighting him makes me miserable and affects others, too. If I desire to be transformed, I must voluntarily submit to the changes. Psalms 51, 1 through 2 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Thank you. Principle six, this is the repairing relationships. This is the relationship choice. Really super important. Re recovery is about relationships. Uh, I didn't do relationships well. And I'm not just talking uh, boyfriend, girlfriend stuff, although I probably didn't do that well either. I'm talking about transparency, getting to know people, letting them know who I am really kind of thing, letting down the mass. I wasn't very good at that. And so part, a big part of recovery is learning how to interact with other people in our lives. You know, we can go to the small groups and the step studies and uh, actually kind of realize maybe I've got a critical spirit that I didn't know I had. Maybe I'm a little more judgmental than I thought. And wearing the shoes of somebody else and what does it look like? It, it changes, it humbles how I, I do life. So it's really important. But of course, the first relationship that gets restored in recovery is our one with God. That is so important. Uh, and then we restore the relationship with others. Psalm 51, 12, and 13 says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Man, I pray that one a lot. So I have to have that relationship with God restored first. And then it goes on to say, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. We have a ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have a, a mission and a mission field where we can help people turn back to God because that's happened for us to start. And so the principle says this, evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to those who've hurt me, and make amends for harm I've done to others except when to do so would harm them or others. Happy are the merciful and happy are the peacemakers. Matthew 5, 7, and 9. Romans 12, as, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. You know, God healed me and changed my heart and moved me from worldly sorrow to godly sorrow. And what I mean by that, worldly sorrow, that's about regret. That's about getting caught. That's about damage control. And I knew I needed something deeper in me. Godly sorrow is other-centered and God-centered. And then I became eager to make the amends and take care of the uh, unfinished business. So this step helped me not to minimize my part in the hurt that I caused. After I got past my nervousness, God gave me a sense of peace 
and willingness. This step gave me a greater sense of freedom and it drew me closer to God and others. Some of the amends I was able to do right away, some I had to wait on, but I could see God's hand in the timing and all of it. And a big part of my amends was the living amends, right? Demonstrating over time to the people around me that I was changing and doing things differently. Relationships are complex and multidimensional, and the evaluation process always starts with me. I try to use the heart check in each situation to evaluate where I am. Am I hurting? Am I exhausted? Am I angry? Am I resentful? Am I tense? Because believe me, those things can influence my reaction or my response to a situation. Our reaction is always emotionally driven, whereas a response happens when I evaluate the situation first. I also must remember that not everyone is on the same journey that I am on. The evaluation process helps me to try to see things from their perspective. It brings about understanding. Wrong is wrong, but the one who did the hurting has their own baggage. So I move forward in understanding. And um, this is where I am. And, and I will forgive and no longer allow that to control my life today. I am able to forgive quickly, and when I cause harm, Jesus is very quickly to point it out to me so that I can go and apologize. Confession and forgiveness produce freedom in my life. I also must remind myself that when I am making an amends to someone for harm that I've caused, I need to go with true repentance, and their response is up to them. Also, that forgiving one's negative behavior is also not saying it's okay. It's just not allowing it to have power over my present and my future. Psalm 71, 21 and 22 says, Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. All right, thank you. Principle seven is the maintaining momentum, the growth choice. And that says, reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. Psalms 119, 36 through 37 says, turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. You know, with physical food, when we get hungry, right, we, we want to eat. We're hungry. I'm, I'm going to eat something. But after we've eaten, after we've had our fill, we don't want any more food. But with spiritual food, meaning God's word, it's just the opposite. Spiritual food seems when I stay away from God's word long enough, I lose my appetite for it. If I stay away from food, I get hungry, right? If I stay away from God's word long enough, I lose my appetite for it. But when I'm in it on a regular basis, I get hungry for more. It's just the opposite. You know, there's so many different ways to access God's Word through the written Word, the Bible, other Christian resources, from, uh, you know, being uh, into uh, reading uh, different literature, audio, visual. Anyway, there's a plethora of resources. There's, there's no excuse not to be diving into God's Word in one form or another. So in this principle, I have to be deliberate and intentional in my prayer and my study time. You see, I have a uh, built-in forgetter, right? I can't remember the pain and suffering of a week or a month ago, let alone 20 years ago. And so that's why a lot of us repeat the sins that we do. We forget how much of a problem it was, how it hurt. It hurt me. It hurt others. But the other thing I forget uh, when I'm off track, uh, when I'm not following God, is I forget his goodness. I forget his graciousness, how he's been so good to me. Uh, and so God wants to build a lot of reminders into us, and I think his word really declares that. Uh, some people sometimes say, well, you know, isn't recovery a little repetitive? And yeah, it seems like you're going over the same thing. And, and, uh, but the Bible's repetitive, right? You know, why do you go to all those meetings and things like that? Why do you have life groups and Bible studies? Because we need reminders. I have a built-in forgetter. God seems to think so also. And I'm going to show you what he says in Deuteronomy and then what he says in the New Testament. And so it is important for me in order to help prevent relapse to stay plugged in, to remind myself of his goodness. And yeah, the old life wasn't good. Don't believe the lie that there's something back there you missed and I need to go back and check it out. What am I missing out on? Nothing, right? But here's what uh, Deuteronomy says. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols to your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Bind them on your foreheads. Like God wants it to stay there, doesn't he? Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He also says this through Peter in 2 Peter. And this is Peter talking to Christians who were grounded in their faith. He says, so I will remind you of these things. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So repetition is good, and reminding myself of where I've been uh, and what God has done for me is really important. And I wanted to highlight real quick these four phases of relapse that we talk about uh, in recovery, uh, because it's good to recognize if I'm heading into relapse, if, if I've been checking out on this thing. The first phase is called complacency, complacency. <clears throat> Anybody can get complacent. Right? I've gotten complacent in my Christian faith, not praying as much, maybe not in the Word as much, uh, just, just not um, uh, as plugged in as I really could be. But, you know, in complacency, success and prosperity can be our downfall. We stop attending meetings. We're not into God's Word. We're not working the principles in our lives. You know, a lot of people come into recovery, and they start to feel better, and they have a reduced level of pain. They think they can live with that reduced level of pain, but they haven't fully dealt with the problem yet. I love what it says in Revelation when Jesus is talking to the seven churches and what he says to the church at Ephesus. It reminds me of this idea of complacency, right? He says to them, look at the height from which you've fallen. Go back to the things you did at first, right? Go back to your first love. What's he saying? Go back to basics. So in the complacency phase, what can happen, even if we haven't acted out sinfully, right, we cannot notice the height from which we've fallen. And this brings us into the confusion phase. That's the second phase. Uh, and this is where reality starts to become fuzzy and confused. Uh, you know, we haven't been surrounding ourselves with the truth. Uh, and that started in the complacency phase. And so we start to tell ourselves, you know, it really wasn't that bad. I could probably go back and do that a little bit. Maybe I was just overthinking that. What was so apparent that I needed to leave that old lifestyle, move forward and trust God, right? Now it becomes fuzzy, right? Complacency to confusion, and then the third phase is compromise, right? At this phase, we start going back to the place of temptation. Maybe I'm hanging out with some people I probably shouldn't. We start toying with things in our mind because the temptation starts right up here. And rather than taking thoughts captive to Christ, right, I'm letting it dump. If we're in the compromise phase... We're in a tailspin. There's a good chance we're not going to pull out of that. And that brings us to catastrophe. And that's when we actually act out. The hate returns. The bitterness comes back. Uh, and we, you know, the bottom falls out emotionally, spiritually, financially. So this principle also helps us to prevent relapse. I can honestly say that the biggest regret I have in my life is that I did not start to study God's word sooner. Being in God's word daily adds sanity to my life. It brings comfort to me and understanding, and I get to see things from God's perspective. I get to see who he is as much as I can understand, which is more than I thought I could. I said earlier that God speaks to me when I'm in his word, and that is so true. I always have to ask myself, what is he telling me through what I'm reading today? Is he showing me his character? Is he giving me a tidbit um, to hang on to for something that I might need later on today? Is he pointing out to me what I need to change as he's working on someone else in scripture to make the same changes? Is he showing me how to pray for others? Several years ago, when I was pretty much taken over by this challenge as I was having with my adult children, I bought a journal and turned it into a prayer journal for my family. And as I'm reading through God's word, his scripture jumps out at me and says, this is for so-and-so. And I will take that journal out and turn that scripture into a prayer for that specific individual. And I can't tell you how much peace that brings me and how through that process, I can continue to stay on the altar and be a living sacrifice. Psalm 63, 1 says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So finally, principle eight, recycling the pain, the sharing choice. The sh sharing sounds a little, you know, but what does that mean? The Great Commission, right? 
Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making disciples. So as God impacts us, we're going to impact others. This is what the principle says. Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. Matthew 5.10, happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. So if all I got from my relationship with Jesus Christ was salvation and eternity with Christ in heaven, that would be enough and amazing indeed. But he also brings us healing and victory from our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. In this principle, principle eight, we get to share those victories with others, uh, and they find redemption and healing. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that what? We can comfort those in any trouble that we've received from God. And I love Isaiah chapter 6, 6 and 8. It says this, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. So God has pulled us from the fire, bore the penalty of our sins with the purpose that we would tell others. As we follow Jesus, we try to develop disciples so that they can share in the good news and also tell others. So when I'm sponsoring somebody or I'm helping somebody, it helps to keep me humble and focused on my own recovery. Working with others helps us to ensure our recovery and avoid relapse because I'm reminded about what it was like for me in the past. And I learn new things. You see, I have a built-in forgetter. When I'm not helping others, I can revert back to my own selfishness and lose my progress. Matthew 10.39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Perhaps that's where we get the saying, you've got to give it away to keep it. To yield means to relinquish myself to be used by God however he wants to use me. Sometimes that call can be difficult, and sometimes the response isn't always positive when we bring the good news to others. One of the best examples I have in my life as to what that means is my mom. She is not perfect, yet she yielded. She relinquished herself and said, here am I, Lord, send me. As a wife, mom, missionary, he used her. He used her when she was in the middle of a tropical island with women who did not speak English and when ministering to international students here at LU. Even now, she goes into a local facility and does Bible studies with her peers and continues to share Jesus like she has done my entire life. She is my example. And there has been lots of pain, disappointments, and struggles, yet she surrendered herself through all of it to be used by God. I want to be that example to others also. I don't want anyone to have the impression that I have it all together, because I do not. But I believe that I may struggle. I know how to struggle well. I'm dealing with a lack of patience in my life right now with the situation in our home, learning how to battle the disease of dementia and separate it from the person. Being a caretaker is a strenuous job, and I know that there are plenty of you in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. How can I legitimately encourage someone to be patient with a situation in their home if I'm not? I can't. I can't be a good example if I don't utilize the opportunities for growth that God gives me. But I do love sharing the good news of Jesus and about what God has done in my life with others. I love one-on-one -on -one conversations. I love leading women through the Word of God. I love going to the jails every single week and meeting with these women from all different walks of life, all of them hurting and terrified and hopeless and showing them who Jesus is and what he can do for them. And when I start to see that glimmer in their eyes, the point of I'm getting it, it's an amazing feeling because I know that the Holy Spirit is breaking through that hard shell of a very broken woman. I get to see the same experience happen when I lead step studies on the outside of the jail with women who have never been in jail because we are all still just as broken with life struggles and we all need the healing power of Jesus Christ. Celebrate Recovery has become that tool that I get to use to introduce struggling Christians to the power through the process that they have, through the power that they already possess with, that, um, with their relationship with Jesus and to introduce others to him for the first time. We want to invite all of you 
in one way or another to be a part of this incredible ministry that God has given us both with Celebrate Recovery here at Impact and with the land in between ministries within the jails. We will be holding an informational meeting here on July 10th, which is next Sunday, right here up front. So I want to encourage you to come, ask all your questions, and get some information. We are still at the beginning stages of launching this ministry here at Impact. And as always with ministry, we need men and women who are willing to serve. We need, we need a technical team. We need a worship team. And people who are willing to help out in celebration place with the kids. But most importantly, if you're looking for healing, then maybe Celebrate Recovery is the place for you. All right. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you uh, for listening to this. Brad is going to come up and close us out. Uh, and he's looking forward to starting back up the summer of Psalms next week. But if you're interested, please join us after the service next week to uh, answer questions for you that you may have. Thank you guys very much. Moving, I hope. Everybody listened and heard from the Lord through all of that. So right now, after everything we just heard, I just want us to bow our heads right now and close our eyes. And I just want us to right now reflect on our own hearts and our own life. Where are you at right now spiritually with the Lord? Where are you at? Only you know. Your wife may not know. Your husband may not really know. Your kids may not know. Your coaches, your teachers may not know, but you know and God knows. And what needs to take place in your heart and your life right now through the power of the Spirit of the Lord and His Word to make the change that's necessary? There's a truth out there that you've heard. If we continue doing what we've always done, you're going to continue to get what you always had. You know, change doesn't happen by chance. Change spiritually happens by faith in Christ and his word. So right now, just reflect on that. And I, I point back to the four points, the four C's, I think it was that he said, of relapse, of, of falling away. And, and it started with complacency. Maybe you've just become complacent in your walk with the Lord, complacent about really meditating on his word and you need to make that change because we know that after that complacency you say came confusion we're living in a world of confusion and deception and people falling for false gospels and false doctrine and I'm going to tell you there's plenty of teachers out there that'll tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear you can run to them if you want or you can run to the truth which will convict you but it's the conviction of a loving heavenly father that wants to bring change in your life and set you on the right path will you listen to his way because if you get confused too long, you're going to fall back. And you don't want to go there because that next step was compromise. And you start giving in to what you know is right. And you start following the crowd and what everybody else is doing. Don't give in. We're living in a world that gives in and quits. Don't quit on Jesus. Don't quit on his word. Because at the end, it's a catastrophe. And that's what the Lord wants to, you to avoid in your life. Will you walk in his ways? Psalms 119, verses 45 through 50. I want to read it to you as you just continue to reflect and meditate right now. God's word says, and I will walk at liberty. That's freedom. For I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings, and I will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember the word to your servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. This word, is it your comfort in your affliction right now? Has this word given you life. If not, will you receive it today? It's an open invitation. Jesus did all the finished work at Calvary. Now all you have to do is surrender. Surrender your will to his will and say, Lord, I want to live my life your way, not my way anymore. Not the world's way, because I want to come to you right now. If that's you in this place, every head bowed, every eye still closed. 
If you've never done that, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, or maybe you've believed in the past, maybe you've said a prayer, but you've never felt this closeness, this walk with the Lord, this change that we're talking about. His word is not life to you. It's not where you go in your affliction. If that hasn't happened, then maybe you just prayed a prayer and that's all you did. You said some words, but your heart never changed. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, yes, we're going to confess with our mouth, but it's with our heart that we believe and are justified. Will you surrender your heart today to the Lordship of Jesus and find salvation? If you need to do that for the first time right now, I'm going to lead you through some words, a prayer that I want you to pray from your heart to God's heart. But again, it's not about these words. It's not a magic prayer that saves you. It's about your heart, ready to surrender, submit, and repent to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you say, Brad, I've previously walked with the Lord and I was on fire for the Lord at one time, but lately, man, I've drifted, I've walked away. And man, I want to get back on track. I want to fall on my knees and surrender and submit and and recommit my life to Jesus right now because I know he has a work in my life and I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. And you want to recommit your life, I'm going to ask you to pray right now the same words from your heart to God's heart right here. So for the first time to receive him or to rededicate your life to say, dear Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your glory and I'm in need of you, my Savior. I want to make you my sovereignty. You are my Lord. You are God and you are my God. Thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, the spotless lamb, to die on the cross. His body was broken, his blood was shed, that I could be forgiven, that I could be redeemed, renewed. And Lord, thank you for raising him from the grave three days later in victory. And Lord, I want to claim that same victory right now in my life. My commitment to you from this day forward, it was, I will not be complacent. I will not be confused or deceived away from your word. I will not compromise. I will be unashamed because I want to avoid the catastrophe that's only found in the world and a life away from you. And I want to tell others about you so that they can avoid that same catastrophe. I will help me, Father, to speak the truth in love and to live out everything you've called me to because now I surrender and I'm yours. If you prayed that prayer right now, you've meant business with God for the first time or to rededicate your life, would you just boldly unashamed right now raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I know God is moving. I know the Spirit is moving. Amen. If I don't see you, God does. Amen. I don't know about you. This world doesn't have anything for me either. How about you? I need Jesus. How about you? Jesus, Lord, would you come to our rescue? Would you work in our heart? Would you work in our lives? Would you work in our families, Father? Lord, would you work in our church? Would you work through this church in our community? Guys, right now, I hope you had a message today from the Lord. And I hope right now that we see the benefit that we'll have in this ministry, in the Chainbreakers ministry, as we look to reach out to set people free. Not just those who are in addiction, but those that are struggling with anything, doubt, fear, anxiety, whatever it is, Christ has come to set us free. Let's cling to his word. Let's not be ashamed, right? Man, and Lord knows, let's not be complacent. Let us not be deceived. Let us never compromise on his truth. And let us be bold and strong as we speak the truth in love to a world that desperately needs it. Hey, come back next week. You can see we have plenty of seats in this place now. And it's air conditioned. It's not a hot tent anymore. So you can grab your friends. You can grab your family. Bring them with you next week. We're going to go through Psalms 107 expositionally. And the title of that psalm is Thankfulness for God's Deliverance. So we're going to speak to what we've been talking about these past two weeks. And we're going to go through that chapter. So if you want to read ahead, you can do that and prepare your hearts and your minds for God's word next Sunday. Hey, let's take this word today. Let's go make an impact for Jesus. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. Christ.